please turn to Acts chapter 18 once more. This morning is God's providence and authority in the presentation of the gospel, part two. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook off his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are, who are my people, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Last week we saw that God's providence and authority had the ability and the right to do some thir- certain things. And in this situation, what we are reading here, we saw that God had the authority and the right and the right to orchestrate the influence of the enemy in order to achieve God's purpose and plan. We saw how Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome because the new Christian church that was following the Lord Jesus Christ had begun there in Rome, and the traditional Jews were rioting and fighting over it and disturbing the Roman peace, so Claudius just sent them on their way. That sent Aquila and Priscilla to Corinth, a divine appointment where they were able to help the Apostle Paul begin a new church there. This is not the first time we see the Lord orchestrating the influence of the enemy for his purpose and for his glory. We saw it at the day of his crucifixion, that final holy week before his death and resurrection. The Jews had called Christ a blasphemer. They wanted him killed. They wanted him executed. His influence was growing too much. And so in God's providence and according to God's plan, he had orchestrated that the priesthood of Israel 
would turn over to Rome the final sacrifice. The Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And it was Rome, technically, that put Christ to death. So in one way, you could say that in God's providence, he was bridging the gap. Salvation for Israel and salvation for the Gentiles. Because they both had a hand in it. The nation of Israel and the nation of the world. So we, we have to be very aware of what God is doing around us all the time. And we're seeing so much happen around us in this world today. Just turn on the news or look on the internet. God's hand is at work. We are called to be faithful. So we've seen how God orchestrates the influence of the enemy to bring about his purpose for his glory. We've seen how he also assigns divine appointments in our lives. And we talked a little bit last week about how each and every one of us in this church, in this congregation, are here for a purpose. And this morning we want to look at, and I'm not real comfortable with how I worded this, but we want to look at how God calls to himself everyone he desires. So that's where we're going. Allow me to pray briefly and then we'll dig in. Lord, we pray this morning that you may help us, your children, be faithful to you and understand what we may glean from this scripture that will inspire us, that will correct us, that will rebuke us, that will encourage us to be your children faithfully. We confess that we very frequently fail. We confess that we very often don't even try. Help us to repent in areas of our life that reflect upon you. An image that should not be seen in the life of Christians. Help us to be faithful this day to your word and its truth. In Jesus' name, amen. There's been a little over 100 years ago. Some of you may be aware, of, I believe I've not seen it. There's a new video out depicting what went on 100 years ago. A new discovery by Madame Curry and her husband kind of grew to a realization that this product could be used in a very, what they thought was a very positive way. Some of you may have seen the uh, film, The Radium Girls. During the First World War, radium was a new product, a new discovery, a new invention. And the properties about that radium were quite unique. They would put dots on watch faces and clock faces so that you could tell what time it is in the dead of night. Those things would glow. And they hired young women or, or women to sit in factories on stools and put these small dots around the clock face. And, and these ladies were encouraged to make the tip of their paintbrush sharp and pointed by licking them with their mouths. 
And that radium got into their systems and poisoned many of them. And many of them got cancer and died. There were a few accounts where women got so sick that their jaws literally just fell off. They didn't know any better. They thought this was a good thing. You can even find ads on the internet how they thought it was such a unique product. It was used in lotions and makeup. They never knew until it was too late that they were working with and playing with poison. You hear a story like that and you kind of, your heart breaks and you wonder why in the world can they not understand how important it is to know what you're dealing with. It's almost, I want to make a transition here. It's almost like the church has fallen asleep. We no longer realize or we are no longer aware of what we are dealing with when it comes to the gospel. We are dealing with the eternal souls of the lost. Should they not be told about the danger of dying without Christ? Should they not be told about his mercy and grace? Should our message not put into them enough fear that would cause them to change and repent and turn to Jesus? Too many Christians are too cold and apathetic about the gospel, but this world has already tasted of poison, spiritual poison, spiritual death, and they need Christ. How do we remedy that? We wake up as a church. More than once the Apostle Paul talks about waking up, both in Romans and Ephesians. Romans 13, 11, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. And again in Ephesians 5, therefore he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. God calls us to wake up. We have been called of God by his gospel, by his message. We have been given the Holy Spirit. We know what is right and true and eternal, and we rejoice in knowing who he is. And we come here on Sundays worshiping him because we realize all that he has done for us. But when we leave here on Sunday morning, do we ever speak of him to anyone else during the week? When we look at the Apostle Paul and follow his example as we have through this book of Acts, we see how he was determined. He was bold. He was reasonable in his arguments. He would go to the Jews and would use Old Testament scripture and talk to them about how Christ fulfilled every prophecy about the Messiah. 
and he was fearless. He would talk to anybody. Many times he was beaten, chastised, persecuted, run out of town. We'll talk about that again later on. But we've seen how he was determined, reasonable, and fearless. But there was a point. There was a point when he would stop. And we see that one of those points, one of those times this morning. In verse 4 of our text, the Apostle Paul was in the synagogue in, in Corinth. And it says, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks... When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, that word for opposed literally means, it could mean argued against, it actually means raged in battle against. They were angry in their disagreement. They were almost brought to blows over what Paul was teaching them. And they reviled him. That's another word for blaspheme. They lied about him. They brought false testimony against him. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. There are three sub-points I want to look at this morning. As we consider that God calls everyone that he desires, we also want to see that the message of the gospel is important to God. The message of the gospel should be important to the church. And is the ministry of the gospel important to you? Now, when the Apostle Paul told the Jews in that synagogue... I'm just going to shake the dust out of my clothes and leave you. My, your blood be on your own, own heads. I am innocent. Was this an act of, judge, act of judgment by Paul? Was the apostle assuming authority that exclusively belonged to God? Was he telling these people, you're doomed, you're damned in your sin. I will, I will waste no more time with you. No, that's not what he was doing. The Apostle Paul was very aware of an admonition given to the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17, the Lord told Ezekiel the prophet, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will be delivered from you will have delivered your soul. 
The Apostle Paul was doing, being obedient to this admonition that Ezekiel had received. The Apostle Paul was a prophet, a New Testament prophet, and he was just being faithful to proclaim the gospel to those who are lost. If they refuse it, God would not hold Paul accountable. I remember years ago in my youth, I had a friend who worked at a grocery store, and he was he had evangelistic zeal. He would talk to anyone, too, about Jesus. And while he was at work, one day someone came in the store with a gun and tried to rob the place. A few people in the store were able to knock the man down and get his gun and hold him until the police got there. And my friend's zeal and compassion for this lost criminal, may I say that without offending anyone, was such that he reached in his pocket. He always had several of them. And the police had this man in handcuffs and were walking him out of the store to the squad car, one on either side. And my friend, as they walked him out, he was walking backward, reading a gospel tract to him. When they got him out of the car, the police officers led him finished reading it to them, and he said to this man as he stuffed the track in his pocket, now you've heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be saved. If you refuse him, my hands are clean. He took the opportunity there to share the gospel. We see that God's providence and authority is our to orchestrate the influence of the enemy for his glory. We've seen how it is possible that God assigns divine appointments, and we do not realize them, but they are everywhere, every day. God also has the providence and authority to call to himself everyone he desires. A lot of people hear me say something like that, and we wonder, is the preacher hyper-Calvinist? What is a hyper-Calvinist? Hyper-Calvinist is someone who says that, well, God will save all that he will, whether I do anything about it or not. That's wrong. I think there are too many of us in Christianity who argue over the finer points of Scripture while we let people die in their sin. I don't think hyper-Calvinism should have any bearing upon the Christian church. It's a misunderstanding. It just adds confusion. It distracts us. Don't let this lull you to sleep. Don't let this bring you to the point where you think, oh, God's going to do what he's going to do, whether I do anything about it or not. No. The message of the gospel is important to God. And he wants his truth proclaimed. That is what he has called us to do. Some in the church have been given the gift of evangelism. 
They love to talk about Jesus. They cannot help it. They are compelled to do so. They have a burden for the lost that gives them the zeal, and they are beautiful people. What about the rest of you? Are we all responsible to this admonition that Ezekiel was given, that Paul fulfilled, that if we don't witness to someone, their blood shall be upon our hands? They will die in their sin. They're responsible for their own sin, but you should have told them something. Is God going to judge us someday for failing to share the gospel? Preacher, does this mean if I don't share the gospel, I, will I lose my salvation? No. Our Westminster Confession says that they whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly, listen to the language, but shall certainly persevere to the end and be eternally saved. If you're professing Christ and you're not persevering, then there's something wrong. John 10, 28, the Lord himself said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. We don't lose our salvation. But if we aren't being faithful, there might be some, there, there is something wrong. It might be some evidence that we haven't really committed to this new life in Christ, or we aren't really saved. I was surprised going to seminary how many brothers in study with me told me that they never really understood the gospel. They never really got saved until they were in seminary. Thought they were Christians all of their lives. And the longer you live, the longer you will find others, too, who realize I've been fooling myself for years. I've never known Jesus until now. Our Lord says, being confident of this the very thing, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Is God working in his providence and authority to make you into his image? Yes, he is. Are you paying attention? Second Peter 1.10 Brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Again, let me remind you before we move on, preacher, does this mean that I don't share, if I don't share the gospel, will I lose my salvation? 
Would God condemn a follower for not sharing the truth? No. What I believe is going on here in this text is there is some hyperbole, exaggeration, deliberately. Language that brings home the point that wants to shock us into an awareness, to wake us up. This is important because the gospel is important to God and we begin to fail to see it very quickly after salvation. If the gospel is important to God, the gospel should be important to the church. The message is that important. In an online article by Tim Chalice, he quoted Alistair Begg talking about this very thing. Neither our assurance as believers nor God's love for us hinges on our ability to live out certain Christian principles. Rather, both depend on what Christ has achieved for us on the cross. Even so, the Bible teaches us to look for evidences of our salvation in the present day. If we truly are the Father's children... We are bound to display a love for others that resembles Jesus' love for us. If we are truly his, there should be evidence of love for others, much like God's love was displayed for us. God loved you, sinner. in such a way that he gave his son for you, rebel. Jesus calls us, continuing Alistair Begg, Jesus calls for us to love people in a way that is not related to their attractiveness, their merit, or lovability. We know that, that this is exactly how God loves us. His love is not based on us cleaning up our act, deserving his attention, or demonstrating that we're predestined, or excuse me, predisposed toward, towards or useful to him. None of those things contribute to God's love for us. No. God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Quoting Romans 5.8. And allow me to paraphrase that verse just a little bit. God shows his love for the world in that while the world was still rebellious against his will, by his providential plan and by his authority, he gave his son for their redemption. And yours and mine. So the gospel should be important to the church because it is important to God. The church is supposed to demonstrate the love 
and compassion of God. The church is supposed to demonstrate the love and compassion of God. And I've taught this before, and I think I need to keep reminding people because when we talk about the love of God, we just kind of forget that it's that the world around us is screaming and shouting that to love someone is to let them do whatever they want and to let them be whoever they want or let them be whatever they want. No. You parents know what it's like to raise children, teaching them what, what is wrong. Why do you teach them right from wrong? Why do you teach them the danger of playing with matches? It's not a dumb question. You don't want them to hurt themselves. You don't want them to destroy property. You don't want them to become destructive. You don't want them to become lawless. It would be unloving to let your children do whatever they want to do. Love without law is licentiousness, an old King James word, which means loss of self-control, chaos, decay, decline, degradation, immorality. If you're going to love someone, you're going to tell them, you're going to teach them, you're going to help them, you're going to hold them accountable to what is right and what is wrong. No one in this room who is married would accept their husband or their wife being unfaithful to them. They are breaking the law. They are breaking vows. Love without law is licentiousness. The Christians are supposed to demonstrate the love and compassion of God, as well as the church. The church is supposed to demonstrate the love and compassion of, Christ, of God, as is the personal Christian. And you're not going to be able to share the gospel unless you tell people they are accountable to the law of God. They need to repent. They are sinners. They are lost. Second Peter 3, verse 8. Do not forget this one thing, that the Lord, in the, with the Lord a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. The only reason Christ hasn't returned and brought final judgment upon this world is because of God's long-suffering patience in order that all might hear the gospel and all be given that opportunity to repent. The Christians supposed to The 
A Christian is supposed to demonstrate the love and compassion of God to this world, to your neighbors, to your friends. A few moments ago, we talked about how it might be evidence that something is weak in your faith if you aren't aren't burdened or interested or or see the important need to share the gospel, to be in participation with your church to see that that happens. We go to James chapter 2. And he talks about this very thing. He does not disagree with the Apostle Paul who believes, who taught, who preached that we are saved by faith through grace. or saved by grace through faith. James sounds like he's talking about we're saved by keeping the law. No. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you say, James is using an illustration. A lot of people, he's talking about helping the poor people. We're supposed to help the poor people. He's using it as an illustration. Yes, we are supposed to help poor people, but here he is using it as an illustration so that people might get it and wake up. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. James here is arguing a point, and I can change a couple of words in here. You say you have faith and you believe in the gospel and you do not share it. It's almost like he's saying, you better look again. You might not be saved. If you do not see the importance in the gospel that God sees and that God has called us to, something is wrong. He calls the church to be his. He calls each and every one of us to serve and to help and to participate in the work of ministry. You might not be called to be an evangelist, but you can sure help support the evangelistic mission of the church. You might not be, you might not have the gift, but you can sure share the gospel in some way to your neighbor. You can say something to them that will make them question their own beliefs. 
and I don't care who you talk to, I don't care if they believe in God or not, everybody has a religion. Even atheists have a religion. It's their own religion. They worship at the foot of scientists. It's a religion. It takes more faith than yours or mine. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave, the ministry, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The message of reconciliation is the message of the gospel. It is important to God. It is so important to God that he told Ezekiel, I'm going to require the blood of the lost on your hands if you do not tell them. And the Apostle Paul understood that. And we need to wake up and see how important it is for us. We lose our salvation? No, but God is using that exaggeration of language to wake us up. It is that important. It needs to be that important to us. Is it important to you, Christian? Is it important to you? We've seen example, example, example out of the, out of the book of Acts from not just Paul, but the other disciples who have been faithful preaching the word, seeing resistance, getting persecution, Paul being beaten several times, Paul being put in jail, Peter and John being put in jail for preaching the gospel. And we're too afraid to go next door and knock on a neighbor's doorknob. During World War II, it wasn't begun there, but it was used quite frequently. During World War II, minefields were set up across territories that the armed forces were fighting over. It was a way to keep the enemy out, and if the enemy dared to come in, it was a way to funnel the enemy to certain areas so that they could be easy targets. They called it no man's land. You walk into a minefield, you don't belong there. On November 12th, 1944, during the Battle of Kirchgen Forest, Lieutenant Friedrich Lengfeld, a German officer, heard the voice of an American soldier critically wounded in no man's land. He kept shouting, help me. American soldier had walked into one of these minefields, didn't know it was there, and been hurt. His fellow soldiers were already too far away to hear him crying out. 
and Lieutenant Friedrich Lingfield, a German soldier, an enemy to this man, gave orders to his men, if some of his soldiers come to help, do not shoot them. I'm very merciful. But no one came. Deep in that forest, Lieutenant Friedrich Lingfield did not hear the voice of an enemy, he heard the voice of a man who needed help. So he decided to form a rescue squad and entered no man's land. But as he approached the wounded soldier, Friedrich stepped on a landmine and was wounded himself. And a few hours later, he himself died. We don't know what happened to the American soldier. It's not known by this account. But in 1994, members of the 22nd U.S. Infantry Regiment Society erected a monument to honor Lieutenant Friedrich Lingfeld. I share this story to you just as an illustration to say that when we see who we consider to be the enemy, those who are in rebellion against God, they're in no man's land. They are dying. They are in danger. We are to go rescue them. Fearlessly. Carefully. Deliberately. Not being afraid of the cost. Not being afraid of what might happen to us. And you know, we're seeing more and more resistance to the gospel. It's begun in America, but you look at Canada, you look at other countries where people are trying to get the church, the faithful in the church, to just shut up and go away. And in communist countries, in third world countries, Christians are being attacked and killed. Some accounts tell us it's happening by the thousands. Is the gospel important to you? It is important to God. It's supposed to be important to the church. Is the gospel important to you? Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we are thankful once again for your word and its truth, and we pray that by this light we might see the power of the Spirit and the power of your word in our lives to instruct us, to inspire us, to motivate us to be yours. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.